Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, March 28th, we're studying Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. Having set his face toward Jerusalem and continuing on his journey undeterred for some time now, the time has come now for Jesus to enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have this returning guest, Pastor Tim Eden. Pastor Eden serves at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bryan, Texas. Pastor Eden, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you. It's very good to be with you again. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little context. What do we need to know about Luke, where he's been leading us as we prepare to look at this text from Luke 19 today? Well, um, as you uh, highlighted um, uh, that one of those key verses um, that it's always been Jesus' intention to go to Jerusalem. Um, and here, uh, as we reach this point in, in Luke's gospel, it seems to be that uh, it's another, um, not turning point, but a, another milestone in that, in that journey, maybe, so to speak. And so um, he's finally reaching Jerusalem. Um, and so uh, it'll be good for us to discuss um, uh, why again. Uh, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, the obvious for some of our listeners, um, but uh, something that Jesus has been talking about and, and pointing toward uh, through his whole ministry. Well, just let's talk a little bit about that. Jesus has been, I mean, he's had his face set. We've mentioned this time and time again. Luke has brought it up on several occasions. You know, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Remember that he gets there. I mean, as we I think this is important to remember why, because it helps us to view Palm Sunday in the right way. So why? Why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? What's the purpose of him coming to this city? Yeah, uh, to use his own words, um, uh, just in the previous chapter, Luke chapter 18, verse 31 and following, um, Jesus taking the twelve said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and, we, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Uh, there, I mean, Jesus says it as as, yeah. as many of us can. Um, uh, his his whole purpose for going up to Jerusalem, um, especially the way that Luke structures his gospel, um, sort of differently from from John as as a as a big example, um, is you know. Luke sets Jesus on sort of this singular path toward Jerusalem, toward uh, the reason for that, his his death and his resurrection. Um, Jesus has, has mentioned that to his disciples earlier in Luke's gospel. Um, back in chapter 9, he, he has his first two passion predictions. Um, but then after a time of, of a lot of teaching and some miracles, um, more of his ministry um, b- between Galilee and his arrival at Jerusalem, here as he approaches uh, Jerusalem, he, he tells them again uh, the clear and explicit purpose. Um, interestingly, the very next verse in, in 18, verse 34, but they understood none of these things. <laughs> the saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. <laughs> 
interesting parallels then maybe for us, but again, to our initial purposes here, this is why Jesus comes. He comes to die on the cross and rise again um, uh, for the salvation of, of mankind, for the salvation of creation. So with that, with the disciples' lack of understanding, which is true throughout the gospel and really continues all the way until after Jesus has risen from the dead and even, I think, to Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2, that's when the when the Holy Spirit is given, they finally, quote, get it. But with that, mm-hmm. that misunderstanding of the nature of Jesus and what he's going to Jerusalem to do, I think we might be able to, to tie that into to Palm Sunday, given what a lot of English Bibles title this section, and it's true not just in Luke, but in the other Gospels as well, often this is headed as the triumphal entry. So so to see Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as a triumph. Now, I, I've done this often with parables when to take a look at the titles and how that may or may help us or not. This is not a parable. This is something Jesus actually did. But what do you think of that? The triumphal entry. Is, is this a triumphal entry? Is it something else? So what do you think of that title? Yeah, that's a great question and, and a great way of looking at it, because as I was studying and prepping for our time today, you know, that that same thing crosses my mind. You know, we don't have that word used necessarily in the text. So, it's, you know, it's kind of the question of well, why that why that title? Um, and as you're posing the question, is that helpful or unhelpful? Um, I think in some ways it is helpful because of um, some of the similar language that we see even in Luke's gospel here. Uh, as we get toward the end of our our text for today, you know the word king is used explicitly. Uh, you know, so Jesus coming as a king um, is definitely part of uh, what is going on here as he enters Jerusalem. Um, we'll talk about that with the uh, the cult, um, uh, with the his disciples, um, the the people that are surrounding him. Um, and so there is this sort of kingly triumph type idea, you know, behind his entry. Uh, yet also there's quite a, a, a contrast in the way Jesus enters. And again, this goes to the, the cult. Um, uh, and Jesus doesn't come necessarily as the king that we might think or expect. Um, uh, and again, it ties back to his disciples' lack of understanding. So in some ways, that title, Triumphal Entry, um, is appropriate in pointing us to his kingship, yet uh, it, it requires a deeper understanding of of what it means for Jesus to be king. Right, and, and what it means for him to triumph, too. What, what does Jesus' yeah. victory as king look like? And that's where the disciples' lack of understanding comes into view, that they just don't have this conception of Jesus as king who dies. And that's very clearly what's on Jesus' mind. So yeah, triumphal entry, as long as we understand triumph in the same sense that Jesus has been teaching it throughout his journey toward Jerusalem. Any more introductory comments, Pastor Eden, before we jump into this text? Um, on the same kingship idea, what is interesting, although I didn't study the parable in depth, the the words of Jesus leading right up to verse 28, so uh, verse 11 uh, through 27, um, uh, is actually a parable about um, a kingdom even. And so it seems that while that's not the focus for our text today, we could definitely spend some time pondering the parable of the 10 minas 
Um, because when you look at verse 11 of chapter 19, um, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Um, and then even the beginning of the parable starts with a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Uh, now, again, I'd have to study more into those verses and the direct, you know, uh, connection here. But this kingship idea, even Jesus himself is, is kind of putting on their mind uh, again as he is about to come into Jerusalem. Um, uh, and so it's interesting then even the framing that Jesus does for his own actions uh, that come up here in our text. Yeah, that that's a good point to bring up the previous parable that he's told, which does deal with the kingdom. And on the one hand, the people there in Jericho, that's where Jesus has just been. Those people there in Jericho were right that Jesus is going to bring the kingdom of God, but they're not quite right on the timing. And, and we talked about this when we studied it and also the manner that there's a, a rejection involved with this king. Part of the, the parable was that some of the citizens didn't want this nobleman to be king and they, they tried to stop it from happening. It doesn't. He, I mean, he doesn't get stopped. And that, I think, is what we're going to see with, with Jesus. But that, that nature of Jesus' kingship involving rejection along the way, that's kind of where we're going to see, I think, some connections between that parable and this continuing idea of Jesus being king in what way. And, and that's where Palm Sunday is really going to highlight that for us. So we are in Luke yeah. 19, beginning at verse 28. When he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where, on entering, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That's our text for today. That's Luke 19, verses 28 to 40. Pastor Eden, just as another way of, of introducing this text, again, we this is Palm Sunday. We celebrate Palm Sunday every year. In many of our congregations, the reading from Palm Sunday even shows up on the first Sunday in Advent as well. So we've got a very familiar text. Just in general, when we approach familiar texts like these as, as Christians, what do we need to, to be aware of so we don't just say to kind of gloss over and say, I, I know what happens and, and move on? How do we approach familiar texts like this? Um. One one way of doing it, in my opinion, is um, uh, making sure that we are um, actually truly listening to the words that we're hearing. Um, and, and I speak that to myself as well. So even as I, you know, read Luke 19, 28 through 40, um, uh, I may be thinking of 
uh, uh, certain things that I remember about the Palm Sunday text, um, but uh, actually focusing on the words that I'm hearing here in Luke's gospel. Um, it can certainly be helpful to us, and, and, and while I didn't uh, get a chance to do this a whole lot today. We can compare, especially when it's something like the Gospels, you know, where we have multiple accounts of uh, Palm Sunday. We can compare those, and 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 sometimes that can even highlight things for us that um, that one Gospel writer might be highlighting over another. Um, but uh, but I think just trying to uh, uh, focus our ears and our minds on on the text that we are hearing. Um, uh, to see then what, honestly, what the Holy Spirit brings to our attention in that moment, because uh, whether it's a familiar, um, you know, day of the church year or or just a, a familiar section of scripture, um, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit may highlight something, you know, different for us each time that we hear that for our own instruction, for our own formation. Um so that's that's my first thought. No, and I I think that's helpful. And for me, I guess when I when I read Luke as and I, as I was just reading it a moment ago, there are some things that when I think of Palm Sunday, there I'm going to put quotes around this missing in Luke. Like he doesn't mention them. And and for example, Luke doesn't record the crowds singing Hosanna. Now they do sing Hosanna. We know that, but Luke chooses to record other words that the crowd mm -hmm. sings. And, and when we get there, I mean, we're going to highlight some of those in particular for Luke, some really important things that he records that the other evangelists don't. And so I appreciate you saying, you know, pay attention to the words that are written in this gospel. What is what is St. Luke trying to highlight for us? How does that bring out certain nuances, certain emphases, so that we can, you know, read a familiar text and still the Holy Spirit does work through it, as you said. So with that, let's let's try to pay attention here to, to St. Luke and, and and always keeping in mind what the other Gospels do reveal and, and drawing those as needed. So you mentioned yeah. already, Pastor Eden, that Jesus is called a king. And, and that's kind of it's it's not always explicit in the text. It is made explicit in the words of the crowd in verse 38. So before we even get to those words, though. Where are we seeing Jesus as a, a king here? What are some of the parts of this account that bring out this nature of Jesus' kingship? So for, uh, um, uh, you know, we mentioned the, the lead up um, uh, to our section, but then here in in the actual narrative that's taking place, um, as I was looking more into this, you know, uh, the, the cult, um, why, why is it so significant? It seems to be very, very clearly highlighted here as in the other gospels um you know this this cult is mentioned over and over again um and also the the way that jesus goes about this is is not just uh, um oh you know these things happened but jesus explicitly tells um two of his disciples to go do this get the cult bring it back you know these kinds of things um and then that's exactly what transpired um so so the the cult is highlighted um uh and and it's interesting then because there's no explicit old testament you know quote in that regard um and this is where I, I do contrast but the other gospels can be helpful for us um uh, john's gospel for example explicitly quotes zechariah chapter 9 um so let me read briefly um, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, 
humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, so that text where John's gospel explicitly quotes it, Luke doesn't make that explicit for us, but with such prominence of this colt and Jesus riding in on a colt, um, uh, it, it almost forces us to search for, okay, what, what, what's in the background here? Yeah. And, um, and so even though Luke doesn't do it explicitly, he seems to be very clearly alluding to Zechariah chapter 9. Um, why is that important in this kingship idea? Because in Zechariah 9, it's explicitly mentioned, behold, your king is coming to you, um, you know, on a colt. Uh, so Jesus' actions there, and, and even again, his instructions to his disciples to lead up to the actual event taking place, all seems to be pointing very early on in this passage to this kingship idea. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right on with that. And just because Luke doesn't explicitly quote from Zechariah like other evangelists do, he's got that in the back of his mind. I mean, St. Luke has shown us throughout this narrative that he knows his Old Testament and he references the Old Testament. And the, the thing that I, I appreciate about bringing up Zechariah 9 and in connection with the cult is that it the fact that Jesus rides a cult is evidence of his kingship. And I think sometimes I've missed that over the years. I mean, usually we, we think of the colt or the donkey and we automatically connect that to the humility aspect of it. And that's right because Zachariah does that. But we also need to recognize that the fact that he chooses a colt does also communicate the kingship. It's communicating those two things at the same time. And we need to hold those things together. Another, another passage that I, I came across in, in the Old Testament, it's one that I, I often forget, but I need to, to keep it in my, my memory when it comes to this cult, goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is blessing his sons before he dies, in speaking of his son Judah, which is the one through whom the promise goes, Jacob says this to Judah. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So he connects Judah to kingship. And then he talks about this, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now there's, there's tons we could talk about there, but just to make the point that in Genesis, when Jacob blesses Judah, which is the line through whom Jesus comes, he connects kingships and cult. <laughs> and and it's funny that, you know, or maybe not funny, but I think it's not, it's not unimportant that Zechariah does the same thing for us in Zechariah 9. And, and that's, I mean, I, we need to hold those two things together. And I think this goes to the nature of, of triumph and kingship we're talking about. Jesus is very clearly saying with this cult, he's king, but he's also showing already again, what he's, what kind of king he's come to be. Not the sort of king that wins military victories, but actually the king that that comes to die. Yeah, uh, I, I just learned of that Genesis forty nine one uh, fairly recently, and so it's awesome that you bring that in because um, that's one I'll have to ponder more in the future whenever uh, I'm looking at you know these triumphal entry texts. Um, but I think as you just were trying to say, um, I'll attempt to say again in my own words, um, in in a almost a crafty way like a clever not in, not in a sly way but in a in, a, in this like magnificent cleverness um uh, uh the holy spirit through luke is communicating to us this kingship of jesus yet intimately wrapped into it this humility and 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 
oh man, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of this um, unexpected way that Jesus, you know, as we talked about leading up to the text and and the misunderstanding of Jesus' passion predictions. Here also then, you know, the fact that he's using a cult is expressing not only his kingship, but also the the uniqueness of how he is king. Uh, I feel like that's sort of wrapped up into the narrative then as we look at these Old Testament references like Genesis 49 and Zechariah 9, uh, kind of these unexpected kings, you know, uh, uh, coming in on a cult rather than what... Um, uh, to my knowledge, was common for the day. Again, sort of the military, the you know, the riding on a horse, you know, and even for our our contemporary perceptions of of that kingship idea, you know, again, there's this contrast, and it and it forces us to to ask the question, why? What you know, why is Jesus doing this this way? Um, and hopefully, it starts to lead our hearts and minds to understand that. Well, Jesus does things a little bit differently, but for good reason. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and just, to, you know, to the Old Testament references, you you brought up that passion prediction from Luke 18. And as a part of it, Jesus says to his disciples that everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And so that's part of what's going on here in this chapter of Luke in chapter 19 is that he is accomplishing those things written about him in the prophets, even in sitting on this, this cold. Now, one, one thing that we haven't really talked about yet, and I, I'm not positive if this is unique to Luke. I think it might be Jesus words in Luke. He identifies this cult as one on which no one has ever yet sat. And I, I wonder if that it's an interesting detail for the Lord to include that it's a, an unused cult. And that, that draws my mind also to what, what's coming later, that Joseph's tomb in which Jesus will be buried is also an unused tomb. I, I wonder if that speaks to, as you, you use the word, the uniqueness of Jesus, that, that he needs this cult that no one's ridden on before because he's the only king that comes like this. It, it has to be his cult and no one else's. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on the, the nature of this unused cult? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, some of the cross references in my Bible again point to that same that that resurrection text that you're talking about. The uh, or I guess for the resurrection, the um, uh, Luke twenty three fifty three, um, uh, a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Uh, it seems to be again, it's not exactly the same wording, but you can't help but think of of that same idea that's being conveyed there. Um, the unused. Um, cult or tomb. Uh, and, and as I was reading uh, one commentary on this, um, highlighted uh, this, this author highlighted sort of the holiness idea. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so there, there were some Old Testament passages I didn't make notes of, um, uh, speaking of um, uh, using for some of the sacrifices, a, a heifer that, ha- that a yoke had never been placed upon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so sort of this idea of things being set apart for a holy use um, what was the argument, uh, the comment that he was making, and how then we have that idea being brought into um, Jesus' triumphal entry as well as his burial. Uh, sort of this things that have not been used have been set apart for use for for Jesus, pointing to the uh, not only the holiness of himself and who he is, uh, but these actions that that are being taken. So. That's an idea of kind of food for thought. I, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, you know, I'm just starting to ponder that same idea for myself. But um, but it definitely, uh, this the, the triumphal entry phrase here 
definitely points my mind forward to um, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection again in, in sort of its own way. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I think there's there's definitely something there that Luke wants us to ponder, that our Lord wants us to ponder when he he thinks of, he commands that this particular donkey and the holiness idea I do think is helpful given especially the connection of Jesus to the temple that we're going to see coming up in in Holy Week in the next couple of chapters so I think those are some helpful connections but just another thing on on Jesus words here and we've been talking about how he fulfills the Old Testament in doing these things you know he's come to fulfill what the prophets have written about him but even within the text itself he speaks words that then are fulfilled. And this is a, I mean, we've, we've seen the authority of Jesus' words throughout the gospel, according to St. Luke. We're going to see something very similar to this happen again later in Holy Week when Jesus gets his disciples to prepare the Passover. A very similar thing happens where Jesus gives instructions, go do it this way, and then they go do it that way, just as Jesus said. So it's, it's quite a striking parallel that as he's fulfilling the Old Testament, He's also speaking his own words and then fulfilling them. I think there's some pretty pretty uh, important connections we can make with the way Jesus tells his disciples to go do this and then how those words are fulfilled just as he said. Yeah, uh, you know, that that uh, phrase there um, is even more clear of a connection to uh, uh, to what you're referring to in Luke 22 with the the Last Supper or Jesus' last Passover with his disciples, you know, that phrase, just as he had told them, uh, to my knowledge, is is identical um, here in the triumphal entry and again in in Luke 22, verse 13. And and so, as you said, you know, Jesus gives these instructions, go do these things. And, and Luke simply has to say then, you know, they went, they found it just as he had told them. Um, uh, all of a sudden, my mind is jumping even to um, the resurrection account, although I don't know if words are used in, in Luke's gospel. Um, uh, so a brief sidebar here, but I, I'm remembering one of the gospel accounts that almost used that same phrase with um, Jesus not being in the tomb anymore. And the angel saying, uh, he's not here, just as he had told you. Now, maybe that's me uh, connecting something that isn't as clearly connected in the text, but um but again, this idea of, of Jesus knowing what's going to happen, telling them, and then it actually happening just as he said. Now, I'll be honest, for me, as I ponder the triumphal entry or, or the, the Passover you know, preparations, uh, to me, it begs the question, okay, did Jesus have this prearranged and set up with someone? And that's why he could say, you know, go here, find this, do this. And it happened just as he had planned and prearranged. Or is this an example of Jesus, uh, you know, maybe divinity, uh, uh, his divine nature and, and uh, omniscience? Um, I don't know if we have a good answer for that. Uh, I, I didn't find, um, you know, much, much commentary on that uh, with a little bit I was studying. Either way, though, the more important thing, I don't want to bring doubt in by asking that question, but it's just a, it's an honest question that I wonder. Regardless, though, it points to the, um, the truth of Jesus' words and, and the fulfillment of, of that truth. And, and that's something that we can then rely upon regardless of, of the how. Uh, we know that we can 
we can rely upon when Jesus says something is going to happen, and it does time and time again, uh, not just here in these final narratives uh, of, of Luke's gospel, but throughout the scriptures, when we think of, of Jesus and, and God as the author of all of it, that reassures me at least, and I hope many of our people, um, of the, the, the trustworthiness of the word of God. Yeah, that's exactly the word that I was going to use is, is trustworthiness. And and I think that comes through loud and clear in this text. And it's something we definitely want to, to talk a little bit more about as we get to the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke 19 with Pastor Tim Eden. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, March 28th. We are studying Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40 with Pastor Tim Eden. He serves at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bryan, Texas. Pastor Eden, prior to the break, we were talking about the trustworthiness of Jesus' word, a key point to pick up here. And I think for a number of reasons, one one thing, and I, I wasn't making this as clear as I probably could have, I think the, the way that we see Jesus fulfill both words from the Old Testament and his own words in the same text are a reminder that the words of the Old Testament are actually the words of Jesus, God in the flesh. And I think I think that that's one connection I think we can make here when it comes to the trustworthiness of Jesus' words. As trustworthy as those words of the Old Testament are, because those are words of Jesus, so trustworthy are his words that he's speaking to his disciples right now. And then by extension, all of the words that he's spoken so far. And so every time, you know, in this passion narrative, like in Luke 19 and later in Luke 22, as you brought up on Monday, Thursday, every time we see Jesus fulfill his own words, like right then and there, it's a reminder that all his words are going to be fulfilled. And particularly texts like the passion predictions, you know, where the disciples don't get it at the time, but they will get it. And so, you know, along the way, these reminders from Jesus that his words are trustworthy are helpful for that, that big picture that all his words are trustworthy. And then, you know, for us as Christians today, how important is it for us to know that the words that we have in Holy Scripture, the words of Jesus, are trustworthy, particularly in those moments when, when we don't have the understanding that, that we can look back later and say, you know what? The Lord's words were trustworthy. They continue to be trustworthy. I can put my trust in them. That's such a, a huge point, I think, not only for Luke 19, but for our lives as Christians still. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a hugely foundational um, uh, idea and, and concept for us um, as, as Christians, as creatures in this world, you know, created by a, a creator, um, uh, and in particular as, as the people of God. Um, and, and, and it's so foundational in my opinion, because it applies to, um, 
the, the narratives that we read in the scriptures uh, and that these things actually happened. It applies to God's commands and instructions, whether that be Old Testament or New Testament. Um, you know, the words uh, of um, uh, of God to Moses or the words of Jesus in, in the Gospels, the words of, of Paul and the other apostles in, in the epistles. Um, but also it applies then to God's promises. Um, so not just, not just, hey, you should do this and, and we should, okay, actually listen and do that. But, but maybe most importantly that, you know, when, when God makes a promise, uh, that it is, he is true to his promises. Um, so, so it's hugely foundational. I've heard, um, uh, the, you know, the scriptures, we talk about it, you know, fairly regularly, at least I do in my circles, you know, as God's word, the word of God. And, and sometimes that, that phrase, you know, or, or set of words can just come off our tongue so quickly and easily that we really f- not forget, but but almost have this possibility of taking for granted that um, although there are human authors for you know all of these words of scripture, there is a singular author, and that is God Himself. Yeah. That He just chose to write through human means, um, but He is the singular author, and so yes, when He says something in the Old Testament, um, He knows even, you know, thousands of years beforehand that uh, uh, coming up later, you know, a millennium later uh, or more that, uh, oh, I have the rest of the story written there as well. Um, and this is how it's going to go. And then and then when we see that happen, it, it just it, it just solidifies that that truth and that fact. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. Sometimes the the word of God or God's word, we do just, we say it and rightly so, but to, to stop and think, what does that actually mean? That this is what God himself has spoken. It is true and he will make it true. I mean, his promises never fail. And I think particularly, you know, where does that hit our lives as Christians? Well, in, for example, the sacraments in, in holy baptism, that when a person is baptized, that is God claiming that person as his own. He's going to keep that promise in holy communion. When he says, this is my body, this is my blood, it's true, and he delivers what he promises. And and another time I think it comes in very importantly for Christians is when a, when a Christian loved one dies, to know that at that moment, the Lord's words, that he is the resurrection and the life, and whoever lives and believes in him lives even though he dies. Like We need to know that that is true at that moment. And so this matter of the Lord's trustworthiness and, and his words always proving true is is so foundational, as you said, to our lives as Christians and the hope that we have. And just these little glimpses, you know, of, of the Lord saying, hey, here's what you're going to find, and they find it. That's just another example of him building our confidence, strengthening our faith that his word is trustworthy and true. Yeah, because, you know, um, I was going to add to that, you know, any anything that comes up in our life that may start to shake us and, and our and our certainty or our trust in God's word, um, those things that that make us wonder um, or, or challenge some of these kinds of foundations. Uh, you know, we may not say, okay, I'm wrestling with my, my faith and trusting God's word. I'm going to go to Luke chapter 19 and read triumphal entry. <laughs> you know, that may not be the way that we approach it, but but through God and his goodness, he may be working in us to continue to trust him and his word by these kinds of things. And that's what you're saying. It, it adds to that confidence. Um, 
and 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 I don't want to skip over either, uh, or maybe I want to come back and highlight. That's a better way of saying it. Especially here in Luke 19, the detail that that is provided, both in Jesus' words initially, um, "Go, you'll find a colt; it'll be tied. Untie it. If anyone asks you, you know, why Lord has need of it." And then he almost repeats all of that in the next, you know, two verses. They went, they found it as they told him, untying it. Someone asked, the Lord has need of it. They brought it, you know, and and it was just, you know, A B C D E A B C D E. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, to reassure us uh, of those things. Uh, and so then in an almost briefer way, it happens again with the, the Passover. Um, again, it, it, it reaffirms that for us. Um, and then even after Jesus' resurrection, um, similar to his, his um, passion prediction in Luke 18, after he's died and risen again and he appears to his disciples, um, Luke 24, uh, 44 and following, um, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures uh, and goes on to, to speak to uh, what we might call part of the, the Great Commission or, or um, in Luke's gospel, the, what I would call the, the Great Commission uh, of proclaiming this to others. You know, so he 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 continually repeatedly reiterates this, this trustworthiness. Yeah. And I mean, particularly in the context of Holy week, I think this is a a very important thing to see that, you know, Jesus knows what's going to happen to him and he's in charge of what's going to happen to him. He doesn't go into his suffering and death as a victim of circumstances, but he goes willingly and knowingly. And, and even, you know, I think it connects to the matter of his kingdom too. He is actually reigning as king right now through his word. And he he shows very clearly who's in control of the events of Holy Week, that his suffering and death is not some sort of purposeless accident, but it is actually what he is intending to accomplish in Jerusalem for the sake of bringing his kingdom and bringing salvation to sinners. And so, again, I mean, this is this is a huge point. Luke's going to emphasize it more than once here as we go through his passion narrative that, you know, I mean, that's really going to get going in the next couple of chapters. So we, we've gotten through the cult being brought to Jesus. And as Luke records it for us, then in 35, when they bring it to Jesus, they throw cloaks upon it. The cloaks are spread on the road. You know, we call this Palm Sunday. I think John is the evangelist who tells us that they were palm branches. Luke emphasizes yeah. the cloaks. Is there anything there with the cloaks and the matter of Jesus being a king? So interestingly, I came across a, a cross-reference and um, that seems to, again, point to this kingship idea, even here with cloaks it's something that almost seems out of the blue um but in second kings chapter 9 uh verse 13 uh um, king uh, jehu or or yehu I, I don't know the the best way to pronounce his his name um uh and now it's oh there it is uh <laughs> pardon me um uh, uh this is verses 12 and, and 13 of Second Kings 9. They said, that is not true. Tell us now. And he said, thus, and so he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Um, then in haste, every man of them, these are the people around Jehu, took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Um, uh, 
may seem like sort of a, an, an off the wall reference, um, but the parallel here again of throwing garments and cloaks down um, uh, in Jehu's case on bare steps for him to walk on, but in Jesus's case uh, for him to sit on and, and then the colt to, to, to walk on. Again, it seems to be one of these uh, maybe less significant, but another um, kind of piece of the puzzle, the matrix here of, oh, Jesus was, you know, again, the author of all of scriptures was pointing to this, foreshadowing this, even in this instance with Jehu becoming king, uh, that Jesus also um, is king. And even the cloaks um, taking place here adds to, to that emphasis. Now, Luke then continues to describe the scene. Jesus is on his way down the Mount of Olives, so he's approaching the city of Jerusalem. There's a multitude of his disciples around him who are rejoicing and praising God. And I do think it's just to notice, at least briefly, the audience here. The crowd is made up of disciples at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's a helpful thing to see, particularly when we see more crowds later during Holy Week, and they're going to be shouting something far different, that every time we see a crowd in the Gospels, it, it's not always composed of the same people. And so while this crowd here, made of disciples— doesn't always have the correct understanding of Jesus, as we've already said. Sometimes the characterization of the crowds as being fickle, that on Palm Sunday they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And on Good Friday they were shouting, crucify him. They're not necessarily the same people in those two crowds. So again, just an opportunity to read the text carefully and and make sure we're, we're reading it carefully. We've got disciples here who are praising Jesus as he's going toward Jerusalem. And then we get to the words that Luke records. I've already mentioned that he doesn't record the crowds singing Hosanna. They were, but Luke chooses to emphasize different things. The first phrase he records, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. What's the Old Testament background to their praises of Jesus here? Yeah, a a direct quote uh, from Psalm 118. Uh, uh, Again, I'm curious, did the people know they were quoting Psalm 118? uh, Or is this just uh, the the beauty of of God and his work um, through them? Uh, Psalm 118, verse 26 in particular, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, uh, The verse continues, we bless you from the house of the Lord. Uh, and so, I mean, almost a, a direct quote. Um, uh, the only difference in the English text there is the, you know, the explicit king term in, in Luke's gospel. Um, but uh, from uh, my understanding of Psalm 118, that seems to be the clear reference there. Um, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's, it's referring to the king who is coming to save them, because this is where Psalm 118 connects even more so to some of the other uh, gospel texts with the triumphal entry, backing up to verse 25, save us, we pray. That's where that word Hosanna comes from in the other texts. Um, oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. And then that leads into blessed is he, um, the, the king, the one coming to save his people uh, who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah, this reference to Psalm 118, I think, is very important. And I would encourage everyone who, who reads the Palm Sunday text to take a look at Psalm 118, not just verse 26, but even the larger context, particularly verses 19 through 29, the end of the psalm. Because there's when you when you read it in light of Holy Week, it really opens the psalm up to, to see how the Lord is fulfilling his words. For example, in verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And that, that sounds like 
Palm Sunday, Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Jesus later will quote from verse 22 of this same psalm, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's He uses that in reference to himself. And then even after verse 26, which you just read, verse 27 makes reference to binding the festal sacrifice with cords. So reference to sacrifice. Again, Holy Week language to, to see this is a, whenever the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament or references it, it's good to, to think through the larger context and to see how that one quote can bring up even more ideas so that, as you said, whether or not the crowd fully understands what's going on in the reference that they make as readers of the gospel, we're able to look back and see just how true their words were, even if they didn't fully understand it at the time. This is precisely the praise that belongs to Jesus at this time. He is the king coming into his city to make sacrifice, to be the stone the builders rejected so that he might now be the cornerstone of his church. And it's just beautiful the way, that, the, as you said, with God being the author of all these scriptures, how he ties them together in such a way. It's, it's such a wonderful thing to, to behold. Speaking of scriptures being tied together, take us in now to the second thing that the crowd of disciples says, because this is unique to Luke. They they are recorded as saying, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I think those words are going to sound familiar to readers of Luke's gospel. Help us make connections. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those other, you know, we were talking early on today about uh, these texts that we hear over and over again, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, you know, uh, maybe the, the resurrection. Well, another common one for, for most of us is, uh, you know, that Christmas Eve or Christmas Day text, depending on where we go, um, and, this, and the 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 narrative of Jesus' birth. Um, uh, so we hear um, in the in the disciples uh, uh, rejoicing and praising God here, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Uh, we hear the angels' words at, at Jesus' birth. Um, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased." Um, Luke chapter two, verses 13 and 14, uh, you know, glory to God in the highest, uh, uh, identical phrase there, um, in Luke 19 at the triumphal entry, peace in heaven, you know, a little bit different then slightly different from the, the on earth peace among with those with whom he is pleased. Um, yet maybe even connects for us, um, really the, the peace that's being talked about in Luke two, um, is, is not just, um, a feeling of peace. It's not just, a, um, sort of a, a calm, but really what is that pointing to? It's peace with God in heaven that we have through, uh, Christ's death and resurrection. Um, uh, I, I recall, uh, Romans five and, and the reconciliation that we have, um, with God because of what Christ has done. Uh, that in my opinion is the peace that's being spoken to here, both in, in Luke two and, and, and for our text today in, in Luke 19. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good connection to make and, and that the difference between the angel song in Luke two and the disciples song here in Luke 19, that, that invites us to make that connection, that it is the peace on earth is given because of the peace in heaven. And, and that's what Christ has come to bring by virtue of his incarnation. And then by virtue of his entrance into Jerusalem and all that he does there during these coming days. And, and that's the true peace 
that he comes to give, which is, you know, as he says, I think it's in, in John's gospel, it's a peace that's different than the world offers. This is the peace that we have with God, that reconciliation that can only be accomplished by what Christ has done. And I mean, I think, you know, that just the way that, that Luke lays his narrative out, then it invites us to, to consider it all together. You know, I mean, by hearing the crowd sing this on Palm Sunday, we need to go back and, and think about, okay, well, what was happening with Jesus' birth? What was the good news surrounding that event? How is that connected? And I mean, it, it, it works both ways. Hopefully when we, when we think about Luke 2 or think about the baby in the manger, we want to remember, well, that, that baby grew up and here he is as a man riding into a donkey under Jerusalem to, to accomplish that peace that he came to bring. It really you know shines a, a light on the whole of Jesus' life and helps us to see all of these events together. And, and again, all for our good, for this is the gospel. Yeah. And again, that intentional purpose of Jesus, you know, it, it, I think in a way connects to what we were talking about at the very beginning of, you know, as Luke's gospel portrays this very intentional um, face set toward Jerusalem, you know, now with these words, even tying in the, you know, the infancy narrative as well, uh, it, it, it brings this all, you know, this, this common thread um, that, that this is what Jesus came for at his birth in the, in the midst of his ministry um, here again in the triumphal entry. Uh, this is, this is what he came to do, um, ultimately uh, die and rise again. Now you, you mentioned at the very beginning that part of the context is the parable that Jesus tells right before this, in which a nobleman goes to become king. And we, we also reminded of the fact that, in that parable, there's some people who don't like the nobleman and don't want him to become king. And we start to get a, a picture of that here already in the Palm Sunday text. It's going to become even more pronounced as Jesus continues his Holy Week teaching. Right here, it's the Pharisees that don't like this. And he tells the Pharisees, tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Jesus responds. Take us into this brief interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus at the end of our text today. Yeah, I think you highlighted well that first Luke notes that these are disciples that are rejoicing. And that highlights then this contrast in verse 39, where some of the Pharisees in the crowd, okay, certainly there's a crowd, at least at this point, or maybe there was, but but now the Pharisee part of the crowd is highlighted. Um, Teacher, rebuke your, your disciples. They don't uh, they don't like what Jesus is, is doing. Um, that's been clear for a while. Uh, and here they don't like what um, what the disciples are, are praising him for. Um, you know, is it a certain part of it? Is it is it the king part? You know, that whole language that's being used? Is it um, the fact that he's coming in the name of the Lord? You know, that could tie to a whole number of events um, in Jesus' ministry. Um, is it these words about peace and glory? Um, or is it just in general uh, that um, they don't like that the, the disciples are, are rejoicing and praising God o- over, over Jesus? Um, what it highlights for us, in, in my opinion, is uh, this contrast um, to uh, uh, the way that, that people throughout human history, um, before Christ, in Christ's ministry, and even today, respond to uh, the work of Jesus. Um, uh, or, or we could broaden it to the, to the work of God in people's lives, but especially the work of Jesus himself. Uh, there are some who, who respond, even maybe not fully knowing what Jesus is going to do, as we've affirmed with the, the disciples, um, but still respond with some level of 
faith, uh, praise, uh, rejoicing in God and his work, um, and some that respond rejecting that. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, the parable uh, uh, before this, the parable of the minas, that contrast is clear there. And here it seems to be highlighted very clearly again um, uh, in Luke's gospel. And, and Jesus' response to them, I mean, is very clear of the necessity of responding to him in faith, because if if they won't, someone will, including all creation. And, you know, the very stones would cry out, I think is going to be that that's going to we're going to see that come forward in the narrative again, as Jesus speaks about the stones of Jerusalem being torn down and then himself becoming this stone that that is the cornerstone, even in rejection, he becomes the cornerstone. So his his words there, the necessity of receiving Jesus in faith, you know, if and going back even to what John preached, that if you think you're children of Abraham because of your lineage, John says, well, God can raise up children for Abraham from stones. So, yeah. you know, trust in Jesus, receive him in faith. I think, you know, we see that here in, in this text as well. Pastor Eden, we got about two minutes here on the morning. Help us to, to wrap things up. Any points we missed? Give us a summary. Show us the good news again of this text of Jesus entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Uh, I think my, my final thought is um, this sort of word of warning, maybe, in, in part, um, especially coming off the parable of the ten minas, you know, the the disciples here are praising God, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The, the parable that Jesus told before this did not end peacefully. <laughs> and so there is a, a word of warning, in a sense, for us that um, uh, we need to heed God's word, um, recognize uh, our, our, our relationship to him or, or lack thereof, um, uh, until he comes and, and and works on our behalf, and so uh, we need to to uh, let our hearts be receptive to that, um, uh, and and trust that what God is doing is actually for our good, so that we can not only hear Jesus' work, um, but also receive it as good news that that He has come as King. Uh, uh, and that under his kingship, uh, we have um, all of the beauty of his kingdom that he brings. Now, again, he doesn't bring it in the way that we would expect, just as even his 12 disciples who spent three-ish years with him, you know, they didn't understand it um, until the Holy Spirit worked um, faith in them and that understanding. Um, but uh, we can cling to his trustworthy word that he has come for our good. Um, he has come to bring peace and, and salvation for us. Um, and he has done that, as we know the rest of the story, the rest of Holy Week, through his death and resurrection, because that's ultimately what we needed. Sometimes it's not what we like to hear, but that is what we need. And so we can rejoice along with the multitude of disciples saying, ah, Hosanna, you know, as the other gospels say, um, save us. And he has come and he has done that through his death and resurrection. You know, praise the Lord. And we can rest assured um, in that, uh, that that our king has come and provided for our salvation through the means that he knew was necessary. Pastor Tim Eden serves at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bryan, Texas, helping us today with Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. Pastor Eden, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. I always enjoy it. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 19 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org 
or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.